Welcome back, everyone, to the Secrets of Story podcast. Here's our theme music. Okay, everybody. I'm Matt Bird. I'm James Kennedy. I am the author of Secrets of Story, Innovative Tools for Perfecting Your Fiction and Captivating Readers. James is the author of the novel Order of Odd Fish. We usually take like a year between episodes, but we just recorded an episode and we went on a tangent and the tangent was rich enough and thick enough and deep enough. And we said, let's go ahead and do another one tonight. So we're doing it. So let's just jump right into it, I guess. Okay. We're not going to act like, hey, what have you been up to since the last podcast, since that was mere moments ago? Right. Another thing I talk about in the blog and on the book is sort of, you know, close, something that is close to the central thesis of the book is this idea that story structure, when people talk about story structure, what they're really talking about is the structure of solving a large problem in real life. How in real life, when you try to solve a large problem, then human nature dictates that that will take on a certain structure. And that when we say, oh, this story violates the rules of story structure, we're not really saying, oh, you know, because an old dead white man like Aristotle said, you can't do this. A refresher corpse, such as Blake Snyder, said that you cannot do this. Jesus Christ. (laughs) (laughs) What the fuck is wrong with you? I know we're not supposed to be contentious, but the guy's like only five years dead. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying he's not an old dead white man. He's a recently dead white man. People aren't saying because these dead white men said you can't do this, that then you can't do it. That what they're really saying is that your story is not true to human nature because it is not, you know, the the character is not going through the steps that people tend to go through in real life when they solve large problems. And that's sort of one of the central theses of my book and my blog. And to a certain extent, this was a cheat of mine because whenever anybody is coming up with a story structure and I was inevitably positing my own story structure to go up against the other people I'll link to, I have this whole chart where I lay out everybody's story structure as they lay out against each other and as they lay out against mine. And you inevitably run into this problem where you get people going like, well, but that doesn't fit this story and that doesn't fit this story. And I feel like a lot of would-be gurus get into this thing. I think Robert McKee does this where Robert McKee is like, you want this ticket on this cruise with me, Robert McKee, and I'm not going to tell you to get off on a dinghy and row back to shore just because your story doesn't fit my structure. So I'm going to come up with a massive mega structure that fits every possible story. And he talks about there is the the mega plot and the mini plot and how, you know, his story also applies to the mini plot as well as the mega plot. So, you know, basically saying even if you have a plotless story, then you can still apply my structure to it. And I sort of try to sidestep all that by going like, not every story and not every great story is about the solving of a large problem. And these steps of this structure tend to only apply to stories that are about the solving of a large problem. So in the last episode we did, we talked about Pulp Fiction and how Pulp Fiction created the sense that like, oh, there are no rules anymore. It just blew all the rules out of the water. When people try talking about story structure, they're like, well, Pulp Fiction didn't have a story structure. So let's not talk about story structure anymore. Let's throw that idea away. And I'm basically saying, well, that's fine. If you want to do a story like Pulp Fiction that is not about the solving of a large problem, then you can just throw away story structure or try to find a different story structure. But if you are, you're probably trying to do a story about the solving of a large problem. And in that case, then I'm sorry, but you're still on the hook. You still have to do this. But James, you were saying that there are productive ways to look at stories that fall outside that paradigm. Right. So you've done something very useful. You're talking about this idea of like, a lot of stories about the solving of a large problem. And whether it's The Fugitive or Alien or Star Wars, Raiders of the Lost Ark or whatever movie from the 1970s or the 80s that I reference all the time, it's um, it frequently is about that. But then, um, so I found myself, like every time I watch a movie or read a book, I think to myself, oh, 
oh, there it is. It's about the solving of a large problem. But every once in a while, I, I, so I find that it, many stories are about that, but some aren't. So I watched Boogie Nights last night. Great movie, but nobody's trying to solve a large problem in it. It's not like this is an avant-garde movie or anything. It's not Cuckoo. It's not David Lynch. Uh, I feel that there's maybe another... This is an opportunity for you. Here's maybe a sequel to your book. Or, I don't know, maybe... Here's another big kind of structure that is not covered in the idea of, like, the solving of a large problem. Which I just totally avoid in my book. And in, in my, as you say, in my first book, I just totally am like, if you don't want to do solving a large problem, you're on your own. Right, right. So, so we, but it's fine. You set out a very limit, uh, not limited, but like you set out a very specific scope. Proscribed. And then, and then you solve it and you bracket everything else that's outside of it and you put it aside. Yeah. That's fine. Let's look inside that bracket now. Boogie Nights, when I was watching it, I was like, huh, well, we've got this kind of weird ensemble of people and they're all living in this world that seems to be kind of almost made for them. They're all very happy. And then they kind of achieve their dreams in a way. And then something happens, basically time passing happens. And then things start to fall apart. And then there's this new world. And how do they adjust to it? And it's not solving a large problem. It's like Boogie Nights is an example of this. Brides had revisited the novel by Evelyn Waugh is like this. Um, In Search of Lost Time by Proust is like this. And I call this genre, if your genre is the, you know, the solving a large problem, I call this genre the beautiful old world passeth away right. genre. And what these works do is they detail lovingly this beautiful world that you kind of want to be in, and then you just add time, yeah. and you see what happens. Like I said, these are usually books with, or movies with large ensembles. Each of these characters do have their own desires. Maybe they're trying to solve problems, but they're often conflicting or petty or quixotic or self-deluding. They all have, do have their own little arcs of some kind. Some of them might be solving a problem, but that's not what this is all about. What these stories are about is that there's a certain world that exists. People are in it, or are like maybe our viewpoint character enters it with certain expectations, and they kind of become a creature of that world. But then as time goes on, the world shifts, and the way everyone expects the world should work doesn't work that way anymore. The world has changed. People kind of separate into who adapts with the times, who gets left behind, or more interestingly, who was maladapted to the earlier times and is actually perfect for the new times in a positive way. That's like the Don Cheadle character in Boogie Nights, who is always this hustling entrepreneur of like stereo equipment um, in the old in the old world. And then finally, in the new world, like he kind of finds this place. Is like he has his own store selling stereo equipment. That's why he didn't belong in the porn world. Right. Um, he re- really belonged in this new world. In some cases, it's negative. Um, in Proust. Um, in Search of Lost Time, there's this kind of awful Madame Verduron and her little circle of, of awful people. At the beginning, they're kind of, um, our main characters think all these people are kind of awful. But at the end, they're elevated. And those who represented the older, more aristocratic ways that Proust kind of seems to um, sympathize with, like Madame de Gramontes and Baron Charlus and Saint-Luc, they're dead or they're a shell of who they were. And everything is reversed as this mm-hmm. new world has come into being. Um, this is a story of like a beautiful tragic decline that is um, it's not ca- accounted for in the Campbell's hero's journey or, or the solving of a large problem or the Dan Harmon story circle. So I thought I would t- let's talk about that. Right. Yeah. I mean, certainly when Pulp Fiction came out, there was a sense of like the world belongs to Tarantino now that we're all playing by his rules. We're all in his world. And he is going to be this great writer director of his generation. And I feel like to a certain extent that didn't happen. You know, I think that a lot of his movies since then, I think, you know, he's never done anything as good as Pulp Fiction. A lot of his movies have been really good. 
but they've all, I think every one of them is more problematic to a certain extent. And I feel like then, you know, there was this rash of people who were doing movies like Tarantino that came out right after Tarantino, mostly dreadful, but a few of them really great. And one of the ones that was really great was Paul Thomas Anderson's Hard Eight, which, you know, sort of came out and got just a little bit of notice and then, but it gave him enough juice to get noticed with Boogie Nights. And then I feel like Paul Thomas Anderson has sort of become what Quentin Tarantino was supposed to become. He's sort of become, you know, someone who has a, which I would claim to be the great writer-director of his generation. And I think that it's very lame of me to say, like, you know, like, oh, let's just throw away, let's throw away Boogie Nights. Let's throw, it, I feel like, I, I feel more comfortable throwing away Pulp Fiction, which is such a sort of, you know, Outlier. punky, such a, I'm going to rock your world. I'm like, okay, now I, I have no interest in you rocking my world. I'm going to throw you out. But it's harder to throw away something like Boogie Nights, which is so beautifully done, and obviously a beautifully constructed movie, obviously a beautifully structured movie, but is not structured around solving a large problem. But I mean, it's clearly structured, because I mean, I think like that title card that says it's now 1980, and then boom, and that's like exactly like the midpoint of the movie, right? Yes. So you clearly got a structure here, which mm-hmm. I am not grappling with, and you are grappling with, because you saw the movie. I should point out, I have not seen the movie <laughs> since the theater, uh, because I'm very old. But I feel there's very this old. implicit structure in it that... Um, that does replicate again and again. It's like there's you've got this ant hill that we're watching, which all the ants have their place, or maybe you have this one ant that's coming into our viewpoint character and finding a, a place of honor in it, just as Charles Ryder does in Brides Have Revisited, just as our, our nameless Dick character does in Proust. Um, and then the ant hill gets shaken, and then we just watch all the ants go crazy trying to readjust themselves to this new world. And uh-huh. some, some can adjust, and some can't adjust, and it's just situation plus time. And so it's not about the solving of a large problem. Like the, any kind of problem that gets solved, can solve in the most like ridiculous, um, like, like kind of like having a contempt for the idea of problem solving way. Like the John Cheadle's character, uh, just like gets money to start his business from like a armed robbery that happens to be a bystander for it goes wrong mm-hmm. and everybody gets shot and there's just some money on the ground. He just picks it up and walks out the door. Like he didn't, do anything. But why are these stories very affecting too? Why We remember Boogie Nights and maybe we, you even remember it more fondly than Pulp Fiction, it seems. And so why why is that? And I think what it does is that it takes this Campbell's hero's journey or the solving of a large problem or Dan Harmon's story circle. It takes those steps not as like the whole story but as the beginning. But there's a whole second act that's not part of like the usual thing that we talk about. I don't know if we want to get into this right now but the whole idea of like the psychologist Otto Rank in 1909 and Lord Raglan in the 30s. Let's 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 dip a toe into it. This is because so James is running this by me. It's a 22. It's you know we already did a whole episode where we went through several people's story structure and then James is like wait 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 I've got a new one and it's 22 steps. <laughs> I'm like whoa 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 and then he was like well we should bring that in because that ties into all the stuff. I'm like great. Are you gonna list all 22 well, steps? Here, okay, here's what's weird and interesting about it. Because the people like think, oh, Joseph Campbell just kind of came out of nowhere and had this kind of hero's journey. But he was building off the work of other people. And basically, he took the hero's journey, but it just kind of took the first half of, the, of what these earlier people were working on and truncated it and then made that his hero's journey. But there's this whole other half of it that is kind of like a lot of very more traditional mythical heroes like Jesus or Theseus or... Um, Oedipus or, or people like that kind of follow this entire 22-step thing. And I think it's interesting to look at it because I think we're kind of exhausted right now with the Joseph Campbell, Dan Harmon story circle or hero's journey. People are looking for new kinds of stories 
we're kind of like sick of like, I, I want this thing, I find it, it wasn't exactly what I thought it would be, I suffered, and then I came back to my original place. So I, I would disagree that we're sick of it. I think that people crave it more than ever right now. But uh, So we disagree on that. But yeah, I mean, I certainly think that there is room for these other stories and these other 11 steps. I tell you, go ahead and read the 11 steps. Oh, okay. You know, worse comes to worse, we cut this out. But let's go ahead and, well, and when you say we cut, cut it out, you, say, you mean you cut it out. We, um, we, we, the royal we, we are not <laughs> amused and we will cut it out if it, but no, let's go ahead and do these 22 steps. So, um, the, Lord Raglan and Otto Rank came up with this idea of like, and basically it's not more about stories so much as about like things that are specific about, about all epic heroes. And step one, one, the mother is a royal virgin. This is very specific, but I think you'll get the gist of it as I go on. One, the mother is a royal virgin. Two, father is a king. Three, father often a near relative to mother. Four, there's an unusual conception. Five, the hero is reputed to be the son of a god. Six, attempt to kill the hero as an infant, often by father or maternal grandfather. Seven, the hero dispirited away as a child. You can already see like Luke Skywalker, Harry Potter in this. Um, eight, reared by foster parents in a far country. See what I mean? Nine, no details of childhood. The adventure starts when it starts. We don't hear about them being four or five. Ten, returns or goes to future kingdom. Going to Hogwarts, going to space. Eleven, is victor over king, giant, dragon, or wild beast. Twelve, marries a princess. Well, so, off- now, so now we're at step eleven, and that's when that's when Campbell sort of ends. No, this no, is- not, not yet. Twelve, marries a princess, often daughter of predecessor. Thirteen, becomes king. That's where Campbell ends. Yeah, that's where Campbell ends. And then, but there are these other eight more weird steps. Let me just say what they are. Fourteen, for a time he reigns uneventfully. Fifteen, he prescribes laws. Sixteen, later loses favor with gods or his subjects. Seventeen, driven from throne and city. Eighteen, meets with mysterious death. Nineteen, often at the top of a hill. Heather this laughed is, at that. This is uh, very specific. I, I know, no. 20. But, like, Jesus dies on Golgotha. You know, like, they, 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 it actually it works out. Um, 20. His children, if any, do not succeed him. 21. His body is not buried. 22. He has one or more holy sepulchres or tombs. Sepulchres or tombs. So Oedipus, like, fulfills, like, 21 and 22 of these. Theseus, like, 20 of them. Perseus, 18. King Arthur, 19 of them. What a, is the same about all of these? They're all about a hero who does great things, but then you see him in decline afterwards, which is part of the structure we never see until The Last Jedi came along. Now, <laughs> so here we go. Here's the, I'm not going to relitigate The Last Jedi and how much I loved it and how much um, Matt hated it, but I think maybe part of the reason why it works so much well for me is maybe in some way I realized that it fulfilled this kind of um, structure that a lot of other things fulfill, which is 14. For a time, he reigns uneventfully. You know, so uneventfully, there's no movie of it for Luke. He opens his Jedi Academy. 15. He prescribes laws. That would be the running of the Jedi Academy. 16. Later, he loses favor with his gods or subjects. That's his falling out with Kylo Ren, the Knights of Ren, who I suppose took Kylo's part against Luke. 17. Driven from throne and city. Yes, Luke goes into exile on his weird little island, which is what all Jedi do, actually, whether they're Yoda or Ben Kenobi. They all become old weirdos. 18. Meets with mysterious death. Yeah, when he, like, fights Kylo Ren on that weird crate planet, the salt planet, he's like a hologram. He's in two places at once. It's very mysterious. 19. He dies often at the top of a hill. We see him basically on top of that mountain near the cave, the Jedi planet. 20. 
his um, children, if any, do not succeed him. Right, he has no children. And the nearest blood relative is Kylo Ren, who certainly isn't succeeding him. 21, his body is not buried. Yeah, he vanishes like all Jedi. In 22, he has one or more holy sepulchers or tombs. He did, there wasn't enough time for this in the movie, but we do see that he's commemorated, which, which is a social kind of tomb. You see the kids reenacting right. his fight against Kylo Ren. This is kind of a, like a social, like, oh, we remember this guy. And I think this expanded structure uh, can bring the solving of a large problem, and this beautiful world passes away that I was talking about earlier into one kind of superstructure. And that's why The Last Jedi works. It, it was kind of like, it was like the solving of a large problem of like how we're gonna get away from the from the first order, all this stuff. It was that, but it was also the ending. It was a final act of Luke's like twenty-two point hero's journey, plus like the decline of the hero. This is how heroes decline, and I, I feel that since we're in a declining empire right now, since everything is falling apart all around us, maybe now is the time to t- pay attention to these declining hero narratives. And this might be something. It's an opportunity. There's something that might. Um, have some kind of balance with people. Right. I mean, and I think that that's, you know, that's why this is what we talk about when we talk about The Last Jedi, that this is why people just talk past each other on this movie, is that there were sort of two ways that people didn't like the movie, and one was all of the stuff that didn't have to do with Luke, which just struck me as really boring and pointless and meaningless, and then there was all the stuff with Luke, which even I had to admit, okay, this is well-written, this is well-acted, you know, I'm so glad Mark Harmon got a meaty role, you know, at this point in his Mark career. Mark Harmon. Sorry, <laughs> Mark Harmon. I'm so, I'm so glad Mark... Our obsessions, <laughs> our, our, our lines are crossing. I'm so glad Mark Hamill got a, got a role this meaty as in his career. It was a great role, he did great, great work with it. But then there's this whole other problem that people have with the movie, and I had both problems with it. I had a problem with all the non-Luke stuff, but... I had the same problem that a lot of people had with Luke stuff where it just felt like it was disrespectful to the previous eight movies or the previous, you know, in this case, let's just stick with the main chronology, the mm-hmm. previous seven movies, you're just pissing it away. You know, that you're pissing away all of the value you've created. And what you're saying is, no, 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 this isn't pissing away the value. This is like Beowulf where then he, you know, he defeats Grendel and then he he dies fighting the dragon. This is, you've got to have, you've got to have the rise and fall. You've got to have, got to follow the hero down to dusty death. And, uh, or in this case, literally non-dusty death. (laughs) (laughs) And I felt the same way about the reboot of Twin Peaks, which a lot of people hated. And I love because it was about, it was an anti-nostalgic idea. I don't know, you you don't know, you haven't read, watched the new Twin Peaks, but it has a similar kind of like, the kind of decay of things, of feeling to it. Right, right. And, and I think that, you know, you know, you're saying that we sort of need these stories right now. And we're living this story, whether or not we... I think the stories are always going to be a mimesis of what's around us, and they're happening naturally because that's what we're living. Well, and so we ended up with this weird thing with with Jedi, where like a lot of people were like, "I didn't like this movie," and then and then they were told, "Oh, you don't like this movie because you love Trump," and and those of us who didn't like the movie were like, "But but I don't love Trump. I really don't." And uh, and I my problems with this movie have nothing to do with me being racist or sexist i promise i promise it really didn't i just i just thought the casino planet was really boring i really did that's all that's all this was i promise but you know we're in this place in our culture right now where you know ironically you're saying like oh you know a movie like last year i can help us heal and can help us see you know that that things decline and fall like america is declining and falling and of course decline and fall there you go that's we're back to evil and one all ties in together <laughs> and the movie could not have had more of the opposite 
effect of what you're saying, of what you're hoping it would have Well, had. Russian bots amplified the... <laughs> Russian um, bots. The, 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 they're, 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 it's a fact that Russian bots flooded places trying to get people to, to polarize on The Last Jedi. Because what 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 we what we what we can't have is everybody loving a movie like everybody loves yeah. Star Wars. You, this you, is, you know, this, this is exactly like the election. You're just you're just you're just like oh, it was Russian bots that caused people to vote for Trump. But they didn't. Russian, Russian bots, bots that literally existed. For but th- th- this all literally existed. But they didn't have any effect. It wasn't people wanted well, no, all to it vote took was for like Trump. Sixty thousand people, people, people in three really states wanted to it vote did. for Trump. People it, really did not like. The Last Jedi. These were not Russian bots. You've got to get out of the. But some Russian bots were exacerbating something. You, yes. You, you, <laughs> um, it's. Uh, can you tell that we have political <laughs> debates when the mic is off? We have political debates when the mic is off. But uh, let's not, guy here. Let's not get into that right now. But it just. I'm just saying it cannot be more ironic that you know you're saying like oh good you know maybe this this. This story will give us the other side of the story we've been missing, and that will help us, help heal us. And I think that's great. I think that that's great, this idea that, you know, like, let's not have everything be a heroic narrative, and we can deal with our anti-heroic times, we can deal with our villainous era. None of these Jedi, when they become old, are badasses. They go into a hut in an isolated place. That is what they do. Every single old Jedi that we've seen so far does that. Uh, um, so Luke has to do it too. They, right. And Yoda declined, and yeah. Ben Kenobi declined, and so now we got to see Luke decline because that is life. And Matt and I are getting older, and now we cannot. We're no longer going to be heroes soon. We're going to be people in decline, and so we have to understand the stories. And we can't sit and read Philip Roth books about it. We have to like reckon with it with the language of the things that we've loved all, all of our lives, which is like Star Wars and things like that. And so put it into those terms. I think it's a deep and wonderful movie. The, the Luke stuff is great. What I find more poisonous is Breaking Bad and The Sopranos and all these things about anti-heroes and people who you're supposed to sympathize with who are all terrible people who are doing horrible, violent things. Well, you're not they're supposed expecting to sympathize you to with them. No, you're supposed to empathize with them. Well, I mean, it's, it, it, but from a bird's eye view, sympathize and empathize become the same thing. Okay. Because people would like call up the actress who played the um, the wife of Walter White and say, why are you such a bitch? Right. Like, a lot of people really identified with him. And quite frankly, he took on a skinhead aspect and was, like, involved with Nazis after a while, and it's a precursor of Trump. Yeah. Um, they, 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 oh, yeah. This is, like, a weird white, po- like, kind of... Um, like, don't get me started on... on um, well, I'm started on Breaking Bad. It was kind of you like... You didn't watch Breaking Bad. I watched the first three episodes. I got everything I needed. <laughs> you uh, did um, not. You did not. The, the, you're saying it's, it's all about the, the kind of, like, let's see how bad we can get the main character and get you still to love him. It's, it's Game of Thrones. No, it it's is all not. of this shit. It's the same thing. It's all about, let's all be villains. It's like Captain America is now a Nazi. You, you know, like all right. this has been a, a, a drift in the culture for the past 10 years. I have a feeling it's some weird psyop that we're all undergoing uh, um, because we get our some kind of unanimity from pop culture. And there was a time which pop culture was kind of like, this one like Star Wars, it's kind of unambiguously good. Right. Like, and, and these are like fairy tales. And now they become kind of like, in the name of sophistication, become overloaded with all this kind of like, oh, but what if we make everybody bad? And then, oh, wait, look, everybody in the country became bad and voted for Trump. Um, they, they, <laughs> because because Breaking Bad gave no, them no, permission but, to no, do No, so. this is a, a drift in pop culture, not just Breaking Bad. That's, a, that's the thing that you and I would have watched. But everything else, like the reality TV 
and things right. like that. There, there, there's kind of like a cultural shift that had happened that takes villains and makes them heroes and, and takes our id and our worst responses and ennobles them or at least, not ennobles them, glorifies them and denies nobility. And that is a cultural shift that I've seen in the past 10 years, have hated, have decried all this time. Um, everybody said I was silly and now we have Trump. So who's right and who's wrong? Um, well, I'm not sure you really want to know the answer to that. But yeah, I totally disagree. That, uh, I was afraid of Breaking Bad. I didn't want to watch it. I didn't want to watch a lot of these other shows because I'm like, oh, you know, these are going to be fundamentally anti-humanist shows. They're going to be fundamentally you know, inhumane shows. And they're going to try to force us to agree with horrible people or like horrible people. And I do feel like that was true for a lot of those shows. And that would just drive me crazy. And I feel like Breaking Bad is not that. <laughs> that Breaking Bad is is a show that really forces you to not sympathize with Walter White. And, you know, you, you should forces go back. you not to sympathize with Walter White, but not Johnny, John, John, Johnny, no, John in Arizona. No, it forces everybody, everybody not to sympathize with Walter White. Why were these people White? all calling up the woman who played, you know, his wife and saying, why are you such a bitch? This is exactly what happened with Last Jedi, where, you know, you get... This one, oh, this nut job is going to, to harass some actress who was in The Last Jedi, or this nut job is going to harass some actress who was in Bring Bad, and then everyone who doesn't like it is like, see, that's you. That's you, that is. That's the whole, that's the whole universe of people who, you know, in the case of, in the case of Bring Bad, you're going, that's everyone who likes Breaking Bad. No, those people it's harassing I'm saying, this it's actress. Like that's everybody who current. doesn't like Last Jedi is the people harassing this no, actress. No, I'm not saying, it's not that broad, saying it's indicative of a cultural current. You're the elite who really gets it, but then there's this kind of like whole kind of morass of people like under you who, it's, it's simply playing to their ids and their, their super ego is not engaging the way yours is. Right. They just love the fact that he kicks ass. Right. I mean, I agree. I do worry about the danger of inhumane narratives. And and I do think that the way that Last Jedi grapples with morality can be complex. But as we said in the episode we can, which we're now sort of recreating, that was also true of the prequels. The, the prequels. Oh, know, I, I, I've, had, I've done a 180 on the prequels. Whoa, now I love okay. them. Oh, are you serious? Yeah, after watching them with my daughters, yes. Well, okay. Well, this is further beyond what you said last time, but you know, but it, the the morality of the prequels is complex. So, therefore, to defend, well, okay, at this point, you're you're full prequels. So, I think that right there totally wins every argument I could ever possibly make. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, you're the guy who likes the Star Wars prequels. Well, no, I I think I have a more complex relationship to them now. In the same way that Star Wars was about. The original trilogy was about like, oh, we're afraid of the mechanization of society. We're afraid of evil empires and things like that. The prequels are about, doesn't it seem that big companies are taking over everything and things are, the political things are happening for commercial reasons? Like it's a trade yeah. federation that is causing wars to happen, not people fighting for what they believe in or anything right. like that. And all, all these things are being like kind of, strings being, basically it's about like you have this, kind of liberal order, the kind of one that we've been living in from 1945 until roughly, I don't know, 2000 to 2005, like, yeah. like this, that has been decaying. And then some opportunist, Palpatine or Trump, comes along right. and kind of shows it up as a hollow husk for what it is and then takes it over. Like, the prequels are actually very, they, they foresee what we went through when, like, Padme says, this is how democracy dies, to, like, right. applause. Like, that's Trump's rallies. Like, it was much more politically astute than anybody gave it credit for at the time. And it's about, like, what we were going through at the time, which was 
private entities taking over government. And we did not know at the time that in 2018, the motto of the Washington Post at the head of every article in the Washington Post is now, democracy dies in darkness. Which is pretty metal. <laughs> Which is pretty metal. That's pretty hardcore. And that was what the that was what the prequels were trying to tell us. And we didn't listen. We said, you suck. Jar Jar Binks sucks. And so we're going to totally ignore what you're trying to tell us about the decline of our democracy. And uh, and then look what happened, people. This is all because you didn't like the prequels. Well, no, no. It just, it's, it's a more sophisticated take than I thought it was. It's a more sophisticated take than Star the original trilogy, but the the new trilogy is actually quite sophisticated too because it's about a young weirdo fanboy Kylo Ren who gets radicalized online by some weird old man, you, you know, and, and then like he, but he's like a fanboy, he's a wannabe, like right. he he's like a proud boy kind of, kind of person, and he's the the people who are radicalizing him don't have his best interests in heart. There's this remnant of what we thought we had completely obliterated, which is Nazism. Right. But, you know, but we thought, oh, well, that's a solved problem. You yeah. know, we were able to make, like, people would make racist, not racist jokes in 2006. You know, saying, like, oh, I'm not really being racist. I'm just making a racist joke because I'm not really racist. You know, you've gotten that because absurd. That. Yeah. yeah. And then you realize, oh, God, racism is a real thing. And every black person already knew this, right. but just a, like white hipsters making jokes. Anti-Semitism is a real thing. And Nazism, which we thought was had been obliterated, like Hitler was a joke, a cartoon, is like now back. And that's what the First Order is. It's this remnant of what had thought had been defeated. But instead of being these kind of like very kind of sedate officers with British accents, now they're all co like cocaine-snuffing <laughs> madmen making spittle-fleck speeches. It's completely opposite to our political moment, like very well crafted to our political moment, just as the, the original trilogy was, and just as the prequels were. They nail it, all of them. All right. Okay, so we... The beautiful world passeth away. The beautiful world passeth away. That is the theme of this episode. And I think that we've, uh, we wound up sort of recreating the last episode. We didn't. We didn't really get into the writing problems with uh, Last Jedi. Or, and certainly you had a lot of praise for The Last Jedi that has not been recreated. But I think this is good. This is more, this is, this was a good substitute for that episode. And uh, uh, I think this is all fascinating. So let's go ahead and... One last thing? Yeah, one last thing. The first time that Leia appears to Luke is as a hologram asking for help. The last time that Luke appears to Leia... It's as a hologram. Perfect. Think about it. Beautiful. Beautiful. It rhymes. Um, so, okay, let's go ahead and get to the final segment of the episode. Uh, so we're all we're all done with, uh, what's his name, Lord Ragnar? What's his name? <laughs> Lord Raglan. It's, it's, it's interesting because any kind of first stab uh -huh. at an idea that later on gets cultural currency is very interesting because the stuff, once an idea gets cultural currency, all the weird shit uh -huh. gets kind of shaved away. But when you see the first version, I was like, oh, this is much weirder than I this thought it was weirder. the first time. And so it, it bears looking at. Yeah. Okay. You know, we'll, uh, we'll come back, you know, less than a year from now with a new topic. Mm -hmm. So let's go ahead and go on to the last section of our show, which, as with last time, because we're recording this um, an hour after we recorded that last thing, we still don't remember the name of this segment of the show. But um, this is Give the away show ideas. where we give away story ideas. We, we have so many ideas. Okay. So, all right. So I, we didn't plan on doing two episodes tonight. So I not planned on having to come up with my own. 
But there was a story that I wrote many years ago, and my managers kind of liked, but they kind of didn't. And then if I'd done another approach to it, maybe they would have gone for it, but I didn't. I should have, probably, because it was right up their alley. It's the kind of thing they wanted more from me, and I just was not prepared to give it to them. But, so, let me go ahead and pitch you this idea. And I haven't, I wrote, this is a screenplay I wrote many years ago, and have not thought about since, and did not know we were doing tonight. But let me go ahead and try to do this thing. This will be very pure. So, and it's funny. I said it in Chicago. I had never lived in Chicago at the time I wrote this. But it just seemed somehow like a Chicago story. And so I I actually bought a Chicago tourist guide in order to uh, learn more about Chicago before I wrote it. So we begin with this guy. And he's walking along beneath an L train. And he's this mysterious guy. And who is he? And then an ambulance passes him. And then the ambulance uh, accidentally hits somebody and has a massive wreck as it gets down the end of the street. And the guy's like, sort of looks at it like, uh, here I go again. Do I really have to do this? Okay. So then suddenly, time reverses. Mm. And the wreck undoes itself. The ambulance backs up to when it's back behind him on the street. And then time starts going forward again. And this time the guy steps out in front of the ambulance. And it's like, hey, slow down, slow down. And the ambulance then gets in another wreck. And it's even worse. Uh, gets in a completely <laughs> different wreck. And the guy's like, ah, shit. And so then time rewinds again. Mm-hmm. And we see this guy go through time after time of trying to stop this ambulance from getting in this wreck. Okay, we understand now what's going on. Wait, 90 minutes of that? No. This Just is the first one five ambulance? Minutes of the movie. This is the first five minutes of the movie. <laughs> okay, okay. First two or three minutes of the movie. And so, I love the idea of a superhero who's exasperated with their power. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, one, this shit again. One part of this, thought I was going to be out by five. Part of the idea here was, I'm like, we've got all these superhero movies that are adapted from comics, but comics and movies have different rules. Mm-hmm. And what if you were to create a superhero for the movies that would have, like, this is, this is a superhero that really works in movies. It wouldn't really work in comics because you can't see stuff go in reverse in a comic book. So the guy, we realize this guy is very lonely. He lives in a flop house. He doesn't really know anybody. We see him, his only friend, and this is lame, is a priest who he uh, who he shows up and confesses to, um, even though he himself is not Catholic. And he says, you know, you're the only person who listen to me. Let me tell you about the stuff I'm going on. And the priest is like, look, you know, if this is a gift, you know, and he's like, how do I, what do I do with my life? You know, this is all I'm doing. You know, I've lost all contact with other people. I, because every time I try to make any contact with other people, I wind up on doing it. I wind up erasing it because I'm always erasing things and redoing them. And then the guy's like, look, you think you're being selfless. You're actually being selfish. You're living your life, you know, entirely for yourself. You should try to give this power away. So then the guy's like, okay, I'll do that. I'll try to give it away. So anyway, so we understand this guy is able to rewind his life. I'm not going to get into the whole plot, but he, of course, he falls in love and he decides, I'm going to try to actually give this power away. And he tries to, I'm going to try to reverse someone else's life instead of mine. Mm -hmm. So he successfully reverses this, this woman. She's in an abusive relationship. And he says, I'm going to send you back to a time when you could have not been in this abusive relationship. He can reverse it in, in an arbitrary amount of time. So this is, he he's, tries in a completely different version of his powers and does that. And then she, uh, knowing the mistake she had made, does her whole life over again, or does the last 10 years over again. And then he tracks her down to find out how she's doing, and they're great, and then they fall in love. And then, you know, as with any, and this is where it gets kind of lame, but as with any, you know, time travel story, what basically happens is that people start to remember stuff that he's erased. Mm. And he realizes by giving the power away, he's, he's starting to break it down. And the person who you know, she never married, is now remembering, like, you, you know, I had this other life in which I was married to you, and of course now he's an even more violent husband because he has had everything taken away from him. He eventually comes to admit, you know, he has to admit to his past, which is that there was this 
horrible thing that happened to him in his past, and that he's really been erasing everything over and over again to avoid ever getting back to this point in his future that he knows is coming. The main and character. The main character. Okay. And he's supposedly helping other, all these other people by rewinding, but really he has to keep rewinding to avoid ever getting to the mm-hmm. point in the future. And he and this girl he's in love with have to, you know, she realizes this and she's like, you know, like, you've got to stop rewinding, supposedly to help other people because you have to let time get to the point, you know, where this horrible thing this happened. This is the midpoint now. And, no, this is the end. Oh, okay. the end. And then you have to you have to get to this point together and you have to stop using your powers. And then and then we end with he's coming in the door and he accidentally drops all the eggs as he's coming in from shopping and they're all over the floor of the apartment. And he's like, you know, he's like, now, now can I use my power? And she's like, uh-huh. no, we're gonna clean up the eggs. We're gonna we're gonna get down to the floor, mm-hmm. we're gonna clean up the eggs. You cannot rewind this. And then that's the end of the movie. So that's my pitch to you. As I'm saying this, I'm like, this was pretty good. I should go back and re- reread this, rewrite it. I have not read the script since I wrote it, since I submitted it, since my managers passed on it. Oh, I don't know, 12 years ago. I have not looked at it, but I'm kind of loving it. How about you, James? What's the large problem that is being solved? Well, that's part of the problem in that he is being dishonest with us about what his problem is. But, you know, at first he is solving small problems. That's sort of the whole point of the movie is that is that he is solving small problems to avoid solving a large problem. But certainly the largest problem in the movie is this woman's relationship. He's, he's trying to solve this woman's relationship. But how do you... The larger issue is how do you be a good person and how do you be a hero and... How do you, should you, the name of the movie, by the way, which I never said, was Undone. Mm-hmm. And so right there, you've got sort of two meanings. I don't know. So what do you think, James? I, 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 I need to have a larger problem. Like, like this is not the beautiful old world pass of the way. <laughs> no, this is not. This has got to have a large problem. And who is, I mean, let me use your own terms. There's got to be one human who is opposing what the hero wants to do. Who is that? Well, the husband. But the husband is kind of like just like a schlump who has no powers of his own, right? Like he's just somebody who's just remembering like, oh, I kind of know I should be with this lady, but like what can you do about it? He just has like intimations about that. Like, yeah. I, I guess how close and how intimate is this movie and how superhero is he? How much do his, do his powers only go back 15 seconds into the past? Can they go arbitrarily back? Can he go back and like, we sort of gradually come to realize he can. The cross? I mean, we gradually come to realize he can go back to any point in his own life. In his um, own life, and we realize he's been rewinding more than he's sort of been letting on. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, but no, I mean, I think what you're getting at is a problem in that he never. This is you know, people always complain about the Marvel movies, like you know, the hero goes up against another version of himself is what Marvel keeps going back to. But you know, the danger if you're not doing that is that you know, the hero never meets his match. You know, the mm-hmm. hero the hero doesn't meet someone who has his same pro his same powers only more so then the hero is going to be overpowered. The hero is gonna if the hero is just going up against normal humans, then there's not gonna be much there. And you do have a problem in that with this where, you know, the hero is the only one with superpowers. There are no supervillains. There are no fast forward. This is can pause that's awful. <laughs> like, that's <laughs> awful. You know, you don't want to. You don't want to do that. I don't know. I kind of like this idea. Maybe I shouldn't give this idea away. Should I give this idea away? I, 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 I'm, I have no judge. Since I can't see the large problem, and I can't see the credible antagonist in it, yeah. I'm, I'm withholding consent on whether it's good. Well, I tell you what, everyone. I hate not giving things away because because I'm old and living on a hill. And I feel like I'm there will just, soon be tombs and sepulchers built in your honor. 
I'm just a hermit now, and I should send you guys out into the world. But uh, but I don't know, man. I'm kind of liking this. Maybe I shouldn't well, give it away. I mean, if you feel that you love it, then you should write it, and then you will find the the form that it should take. Oh, I don't love it. I don't love anything. I, my ability to love is long, you, you, long your, your eyes blazed up with love. <laughs> Even though you kept doing the thing like, and of course they fall in love, like that kind of right. like contempt for your own idea, which I've called out in earlier episodes. Right. But now I just realize this is a defense. Like, I know this is a movie is what you're saying there. <laughs> yes. Uh, not like I don't hate my own idea. But like, well, so this you, is one reason why I was never able to sell anything. <laughs> it's like, well, that's not true. Some stuff sold, but nothing ever got made. And yeah, this is why this is... I, I have a lot of ways to shoot myself in the foot. Anyway, so no. Okay, so let's, uh, if you, you know, feel free to be in touch with me. Make a case for taking this idea away from me. But maybe I'll redo it myself. Who knows? Okay, so that was that segment of the show. That is the segment yes. show we can't remember the name of where we try to give ideas away. Yep. And so let's go ahead and wrap up. We've done two episodes in a row. We've done two episodes tonight. What more do tonight. you want from us? This is great. I think that it's not going to be, given how slow and pokey I am at working, I'm still going to take a year between editing these two episodes together. Yes. But no, that is not true. We're going to have two episodes that are going to come up relatively close to each bang, other. Bang. And then we're going to do more. We're going to keep doing this. I think, we've, I think we're, we've got a good rapport here. Yes. I think we're, we're not undercutting each other as much. I think we're not attacking each other as much. I think we're still disagreeing. Oh, you would say that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, typical. I think this is good. Okay, so let's go ahead and wrap up. So again, you've got... Where people can should, you direct people to make movies for the 90 Second People should go buy a book the Order of Oddfish, and then they should go... It's the 90 Second Newbury Film Festival. Kids make movies that tell the story of Newbury winning book in about 90 seconds. Go to 90secondnewbury.com to find out more about it. And the movies are due January 11th, 2019 it will be all over the country from February to April, from New York to San Francisco, from Minneapolis to San Antonio. It'll be great. You should make a movie. We'd love to see it. That's great. And uh, and everyone go out and buy my book as well. Ha. Uh, so let's go ahead and wrap things up there. We'll be back soon. And now we're going to play our going out music. Good night. Good night. Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Story podcast. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on the Secrets of Story podcast in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. Find out about James's novel, The Order of Oddfish, and more at jameskennedy.com. And hey, if you'd like a free audio copy of that book or my book, sign up for a free trial of Audible at our special landing page, www.audibletrial.com slash secretsofstory. We get a few bucks and you get a free book. We're on Twitter at Secrets of Story 1 and at I am James Kennedy. Our music is by Hand and Kime. Our logo is by Jessica Friday. See you next time.